0: Welcome to the War Nomads podcast, delivered by War Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller.
1: G'day! As we say here in Australia, <laughs> had to do it, the destination that we're showcasing in this episode.
2: Uh, Australia is a sovereign country made up of the mainland of Australian continent. Uh, and the island of Tasmania and some other small islands around the place as well. We're the largest country in Oceania and the world's sixth largest country by total area.
1: Well, the weird thing about that is most of it is uninhabitable. We tend to spread around the coastline. A lot of the cities are, you know, around the edge of the country with this huge desert area in the middle, which is why a beer in an outback pub fill is a must-do experience. And in this episode, Jo will share some of her favourites with us. We'll look at our sporting culture, Indigenous history and the world's most popular go-to place to visit. Oh, no. Tasmania. (laughs) (laughs) Let's kick off with your quiz question. (laughs) (sighs)
2: <sighs> oh, I've yeah, got nothing is. to say Well yes it is at the moment Yes it is You're it, quite right It's a yes. state
1: that's punching above its weight As you will hear later in indeed. the episode
2: Alright here's the quiz question Alright Where is Cameron's Corner And why is it significant Cameron's Corner
1: We'll find out at the end of the episode Now Joe has written an article for us Outlining eight of Australia's outback Pubs they Look Have a guess. How many do you reckon there would be? I
2: don't know. Let's try them all, though.
1: Yeah, wouldn't that be a great thing to do? You reveal your favourite in this chat. Mine is Silverton, though, where Mad Max was filmed, and it's full of memorabilia from that movie and others that have been filmed there. In fact... Plenty of movies, uh, both uh, Australian and overseas. It's dusty. You share your beer with a horse, a camel, or a dog. It, uh, <laughs> donkeys,
3: in fact, it's perfect. <laughs> uh,
2: but we kick off our chat with Joe talking about a pub in that same area where Mad Max was filmed.
3: Well, White Cliffs in general is one of those, you know, uniquely Australian places. In that, just like Cooper Pedy in Outback, South Australia, uh, most of the local residents live underground because of the incredible temperatures that happen all year round, but particularly in summer. So you, you rock up to White Cliffs and drive in and you don't really see many people around, but but people do live there. They're just all underground. Um, so as a town itself, it's it's a really you know, interesting place for somebody, particularly from outside of Australia, to visit. The pub itself is above ground, which is uh, a rare, rare incident for that area because most places are below ground. The thing about the Whitecliffs pub is that it's a really laid back, casual community hub, you know, and this is common throughout Australia, is that that pubs aren't just a place to get a drink. They're a whole community centre. It's a place where people come together. So, a lot of pubs you'll find have Royal Flying Doctor tins or fun things, games where, you know, if you, I think it was the Birdsville Hotel has, you know, if you're caught using your phone, then you have to put some money in for the, into the Flying Doctor's tin. And yeah, in White Hotel, when I went there, they had an upturned umbrella attached to the ceiling. And if, If you wanted to, you could try and throw some coins in there.
1: And another example of a pub that's full of memorabilia.
3: Yes, that's another classic touchstone of the Australian Outback pub is, you know, that cramming memorabilia, pictures, front pages of old newspapers, stickers, you know, graffiti and, on the wall and
2: currency come. currency from around the world, different currency different banknotes. The- I love that when I go in. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah, and Birdsville Hotel has the hat wall, so if you um it's a, just a way of the local community to honour people that have done, you know, done considerable time in Birdsville because it's the type of place where not a lot of people, you know, hang around long term because it is isolated and, um, you know, stinking hot in summer. But, yeah, they have a wall of, of old hats that people sort of donate when they leave the town. Um, and, yeah, it's one of those if those hats could tell stories because you look at them and some are really, you know, beaten up Bushy kind of hats.
1: The temperature that you mentioned in the story, uh, the highest recorded temperature in Queensland for the, around the Birdsville Pub, is 121.1 degrees Fahrenheit or 49.5 degrees Celsius. Can you just imagine? You walked in, you've got the red desert dusk on on you, and you take that first couple of sips of a cold beer. There is nothing like it, is there?
3: No, no. And at the Birdsville Hotel, the the second time I was there. I had just come in from a really long time in the Simpson Desert, so it was like an 18-day camel trek that I'd done. So it was 18 days without a cold beer and many other, you know, niceties. And so, even though it wasn't 49 and a half degrees, even though it wasn't sizzling hot, it was definitely uh, a wonderful feeling. To just sink into that tinny of forex, yeah, and and also just to see a friendly bar person, you know, people are very much up for a chat all the time at the Birdsville Hotel. So, and the bar keeps are all you know well versed in stories and and what's going, who's coming and going from the town. So it's just nice to have that friendly face as well. Where's the pub where you can get a shower as well as a cold beer? Oh yes uh yeah there's there's a couple that do that but this i think is the pub in western australia um and it's it's actually now owned by um an aboriginal corporation um you know it's one of those pubs that's been had a very checkered history because of you know the the mining booms that have come and gone throughout um regional western australia for you know hundreds of years
2: are we around port headland somewhere
3: yeah it's up north
2: which one is it
1: Wim Creek Hotel. Wim Creek, okay. Have you been?
2: <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the Aboriginal corporations, they give back to the community, don't they, the money that they're um they're earning?
3: Yeah, so this particular pub is now back in, in um Indigenous hands and that's where I guess um, the the shower comes in as well, as in it's not just a pub, it's a place where people can camp. It's one of the only places where you can kind of just stop by on the road because it's quite in an isolated part of of the country so it's the type of place where yep you can get a beer you can get a meal you can have a shower you can stay the night and can't free camp or i think you can also book a room if you wanted to splash out and and actually have you know a proper bed
1: while we're in wa then as a local boy phil what what are the outback pubs that that you visited any memories
2: uh yeah uh kunanurra in the very far north up in the the very top there. The Kununurra Hotel is fantastic. Um, I mean, that's very hot, tropical up there. For some reason in the humidity, you don't seem to get drunk. Uh, <laughs> it's,
1: it's amazing. You've tried. You've yeah, tried. We
2: tried, yeah. Um And other hotels as well. There's a lot down in the southwest of Western Australia in the big forested areas there in the old forestry uh, industry areas. Every one of those towns down there has got a commercial hotel, uh, and a railway hotel. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. every town. <laughs> or a top pub or a bottom pub. Yeah, that's it. Now, I'm from Tasmania, Joe, and it's a small place, as you know, so you can't actually say there are outback pubs in right. Tassie, but there is our version of it on the way from Hobart to the west coast of Tasmania. It's called the Derwent Bridge Hotel, and it has a massive, massive, massive fireplace, double-sided fireplace, oh. and a resident wombat. That runs around. That's my <laughs> that's my story. So you haven't featured Tassie, but you have gone into new uh, Northern Territory. The 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 Daly Waters Pub or Daly Waters Pub.
3: Daly Waters. Yep. So yes. you
1: said it shows zero restraint when it comes to interior decoration.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's that's a pretty famous one that a lot of people stop at. Because if you're doing a road trip from, you know, either the bottom of Australia to the top of Australia or from the middle to the top, um, there's not many places to stop. You know, it's a long stretch of highway, but there is the daily waters. And, and it's one of those things where you walk in and you just, you, you know, you have to just take a, a deep breath to get through it because it's absolutely covered in memorabilia. There's there's stuff Everywhere. This is decades and decades of of coasters and stickers and clothing and 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 it's it's all hanging there for everyone to see and. And it's definitely one of those if these walls could talk type of pubs.
1: Yeah, bras on the wall. <laughs>
4: I'd love to bras? Know. Yeah.
3: yeah. So that, that's one of the ones that I think a lot of people are taken aback by. But, um, yeah, I think it might have started, you know, years ago where uh, a lady might have left her bra. Now lots of people do um, and are encouraged to if they want to. What? And that's just one of the quirks of, <laughs> of that particular pub.
1: Fair enough. What lady would want to leave her bra? I don't know about
2: that one.
1: Look, things happen in these outback pubs. You've also documented some brawls and murders. So some of these, Joe have real history.
3: Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I always want, whether you're Australian or you're from overseas, doesn't matter where you're from, try and get out of the city and into the outback and more rural and regional areas because the pubs there are... Are not just a pub. They're also a living history lesson. The full article
1: in show notes. Now, Phil, when we spoke with Claire and Tenny, remember yep. the amazing nomads, yep. the friends that walk the entire length of the US-Mexico border? <laughs> yes. You extended this really ordinary Empty invitation. invitation. <laughs> like they, Like, th- I think they thought you were springing for it, which means <laughs> paying. But no, you suggested to them, in fact, that they walk a trail that starts in Victoria and finishes in New South Wales.
2: Yeah, I was a bit light on on details of just from memory, yeah. It's actually called the Australian Alpine Walking Track. Um, You don't cross any tarmac in the 655-kilometre route.
1: Well, I told you during that chat with Claire and Tenney that my husband did it on horseback. Now, you were keen to find out more, so I sat down with him at a pub, he shouted, and asked him all about it. (laughs) Thank you. And yes, we are having a beer, because that's what you do when you go to a pub. Now, this track.
5: Well, I got on a horse um, down near Melbourne. We'd started in a place called Myrtleford, which is about three three hours northeast of Melbourne. We rode south down through, uh, behind Mount Buffalo and down into the Wanagata High Plains, and which is just the middle of, absolute middle of nowhere. And then from there, we went to a place called Dargo and then just wove our way up through the snowy mountains to sydney
1: so is this the track that doesn't cross one piece of tarmac
5: yeah we were on that for for quite some time we there's we we crossed quite a lot of tarmac as well in the in the six months that we rode but yes we we took that trip
1: so six months on horseback what were the challenges
5: the blisters on your ass (laughs) Um,
1: there goes our clean rating again phil
5: um Oh, I had to learn how to shoe a horse before I left, so I, I went out with a farrier friend of mine and, and he taught me how to shoe, and then so just so that I could, if we threw a shoe or I had to, to re, re-shoe a horse, then it was something that we didn't have to pay for or we could do in an emergency.
1: So did you carry a pack horse, I mean, for six months doing that kind of stuff? you would need food you'd need things to cook your food on you'd need your stuff to sleep in and you're in the snowy mountains at what time of the year was it during summer or winter
5: it was over summer but pretty much the first night we were up on the high plains it snowed and so the horses were walking around with balls of snow in their hooves and yeah you know, it was pretty cold the We took two pack horses and two riding horses, and over the course of six months, we rotated some horses, we we left some behind and we bought some new ones, and just so that we they you know they didn't wear out over the trip.
1: So buying new horses, that sounds expensive. Was this something you had to save up to do?
5: Uh, I had plenty of money I'd, I'd save it. Oh,
1: Well, he hasn't now. side note.
5: No, I had enough. I had enough for this for for this particular trip. I'd obviously saved up enough money for this particular trip, and you're living pretty cheaply. So you're you're camping out. So there's no accommodation. You're taking about two weeks of food into the bush every time you leave. Like, so you'll you'll come out of the bush, come into a town, have a steak, fill up the pack pack with food and put some horse feed in there and all the provisions that you need, and off you go again.
1: I was just thinking about how you would shower. Or keep warm?
5: Well, as far as showering goes, there wasn't a lot of showering went on, but there's a lot of creeks up in the, the high plains, and it's beautiful, beautiful water. It's cold, really cold water.
1: So paint a picture then. You've talked about the blisters on your bum. You've talked about the logistics of having a couple of pack horses and um, learning how to shoe. What is it like up there?
5: It's beautiful. It's one of those places that whenever you think trying to think of that, place to occupy your mind. I always look out on the over the mountains and the high plains. it's just absolutely beautiful.
1: You've done a lot of travel you obviously appreciate environment. How does that environment that you spent six months in compare to anything that you've experienced around the world?
5: Uh, I think I had the opportunity to capture something that not many people will ever be able to do. I've stepped across the river Murray as a single step. You know, it, at the very, very beginning of the river, I've I've been camping out where dingoes are howling and wild dogs are roaming around and, you know, there's, it's it can be scary one moment and just absolutely magnificent the next.
1: Well, Claire and Tenney, who did the Mexico-US border, they talked about their challenges with mountain lions and rattlesnakes. Australia is known for everything that's dangerous. Did you ever or did the horses ever get bitten by something that needed, you know, medical attention? And how... Did you sort it out that you would, you would get that if you needed it?
5: No, we didn't have a, have a problem. We saw plenty of snakes and had some mishaps where um, some of the horses got injured, but never bad enough to, to be evacuated. We did at one stage lose a horse on one side of a flooded river and we were on the other in the middle of Brumby territory and so we had to tie this poor horse up against or it's a mare, so we tied her up against a tree with as many rugs over her back end as possible so that if there if there was a, a, a nocturnal visitor with a you know, being a stallion, then she would be a little bit protected from it.
1: Okay, so for hikers in particular, would you suggest this particular trail for both People on horseback or people walking?
5: Well, to be honest, parts of it, you're not allowed to take a horse. And so we had to sneak through some of the time. We actually got caught at one stage by the ranger. But because we weren't an organised horse riding group, they, they were pretty okay with us going through because they knew that we weren't having a huge impact. Riding a horse through there is fantastic, loved it. As a, as a bushwalker, as a hiker, it would be an amazing trip as well. But there's one thing that they're finding is that the wild dogs up there are actually getting very um, confident around people and are actually attacking them, or threatening them at least.
1: And what about the wild brumbies?
5: They're good. We chase wild brumbies. So we'd, we'd actually dump our, our, our pack horses and all our, all our gear, and just jump on one of the horses and just go for a ride chasing Brumbies. And it was so much fun because our horses loved it as much as the, the Brumbies did. It was good fun.
1: And what were your horses' names?
5: Well, my horse was called Silver Dollar. <laughs> Midnight, we had Spark, we had Shimmer, we had Shadow and Dollar.
1: Did, did you like that little horse name? <laughs> <laughs> Mixing up the sound effects a bit. No, yeah, <laughs>
2: nice. Okay. How, how hard was it to get that interview, by the way?
1: Oh, no, didn't have to do much. <laughs> didn't have to. Andy, by the way, has Scottish uh, heritage. He's even got a tartan, like the Napier tartan. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Have you got Have you got Scottish heritage?
2: Not a bone in my body, no. Um, English from way back and before that, French, so not Anything N- nothing, Scottish at Nothing
1: all. Scottish. Well, it works as beautifully as a segue into the next chapter because you've actually been away at a travel conference in Edinburgh. Did you have fun?
2: I did. Edinburgh was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, little bits of it reminded me of Sydney, Australia, because the buildings are made out of sandstone. Oh, beautiful. So, same sort of thing there. Uh, lots of talk. It was a travel conference. There was lots of talk about how it's imperative that the industry embraces sustainable and responsible travel, which sounds a bit boring. But what's more fun is that while I was there, it was Sleep for Peace Day.
1: Sleep for Peace Day?
2: Sleep for Peace what? Day. Yeah, look, it's a cool initiative. It really is. Have, have a listen to this so here we are at the uh wistic conference and um this week on friday while i'm here and it's the friday just gone by the time you're listening to this has been sleep for peace day who knew you could do sleep for peace and i'm going to find out all about it now because my guest with me now is brianda lopez who's just sent an amazing speech about what hostelling means for peace but tell me about sleep for peace
6: Hi. Um, well, we are very excited about an event that we, know we are doing every, every year now for over five years. And for us, peace is uh, really into our DNA, and we, we do it every, every day of the year. We just want to highlight what we do every year on a specific day that is very much related to, for us, our core, that is peace day.
2: So, but why hostelling and peace then? So, because at the core of hostelling, of course, is people meeting each other and getting to know each other. It's really hard to hate somebody that you know, isn't it?
6: Exactly. And um, our mission and how we started in 1932 actually is written there where we are going to promote youth travel, facilitate, but ensuring that when they come to our hostel they can meet each other. And we believe that intercultural exchange is an amazing, a very powerful tool in how actually you prevent conflict and therefore we're promoting peace because if you know how the other culture and you break your stereotype barriers about the others uh, that's a, a very powerful tool
2: and this year it's a bit special as well because there's postcards for peace is that right tell me about that
6: in many of our hostels they're going to host uh, a peace postcard party so yes just yes find out about it uh, in your local hostel and uh, we, we want to do something big this year. I mean, peace is extremely relevant, uh, as it's been always. And uh, we are going to offer our, our guests and non-guests to send a message of peace uh, to the United Nations.
2: Remember those, everybody? Actual postcards. <laughs> exactly.
6: And, uh, yeah, that's fantastic.
2: All right. And this is happening, so the Sleep for Peace Day just passed. But this week's a special week because coming up is another special day as well.
6: Yes, uh, 27th of September is World Tourism Day. So we normally celebrate uh, the week. And there are many activities you are going to find um, during that week in in our hostels. Very diverse. You could have a Joe and and John Lennon bed if you are in Australia, so you can find them singing in a hostel. Uh, So many activities around uh, peace uh, surveys, everything related to Two very powerful things, travel and peace.
1: Nice one, Phil. Now, on your way to Scotland, you stopped off in London and Australians are notorious sports fans. It's an important part of our culture, dates back to the colonial period. You and I are big fans in particular of Australian rules or, as we call it, AFL. Um, it has competition leagues, believe it or not, in places like, and you have to believe it because okay. it's true, yeah. America, Africa, Japan, Denmark, Iceland, the UK. I know we're taking the game to China. The list goes on. I reckon
2: I'm, I might be able to get a game in some of those places.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what, you saying the standard wouldn't be that great? Uh, yeah,
2: well, yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, you popped into a pub in London to have a frothy and watch a game with some expats. <laughs>
2: Every heartbeat's true for the red and the blue, and we sing this song to you. What do we sing? all <laughs> acquaintance people, keep your eyes G'day mate what's your name? Uh, Chris. Um, what are you doing in Hammersmith mate? Uh, visiting for work. And uh, what do you think about lunchtime pudding? Uh, it's good. <laughs> well it's good when we win. Yeah, it's pretty good when you win. I was actually at the G oh. last weekend See Melbourne Beach Geelong and here to watch them win is also very good but grand final tickets I have oh good man yeah, well so done let's hopefully get there and we can go watch them in MCG on um, last weekend in September here we go yeah, sure. what's your name mate? Uh, Anthony and um, what do you think of the result there then mate? Uh, very good uh, I'm an Adelaide fan uh,
7: so we're on the final never mind but uh, Simon Goodwin's next Crows player, so I was going for Melbourne so uh, yeah very happy that they beat Hawthorne because everyone likes to see Hawthorne go out in straight sets <laughs>
2: mate uh you're feeling about that result
8: it's not very good obviously <laughs> is there much more
2: that needs to be said you've come a long way to watch your side lose oh, i have
3: yeah all the way to london
2: to watch <laughs> to watch
8: the boys lose unfortunately sure.
2: <laughs> what do you think about lunchtime footy it's not better
8: eh? not too bad not too bad we've been better with a few beers though, i'd say.
1: wow so what was the vibe like well
2: it was pretty good um I first, the first blokes I met were actually Qantas pilots, so they were they were on soft drink. Oh, <laughs> so no. I had to go find the bloke that was singing.
1: Oh, yeah, who, who at, was, the, at the start.
2: Yeah, but uh, it was quite good. I mean, the game started, because of the time difference, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. So.
1: But this is how passionate we are about it, yeah. and, and not even necessarily our own teams, but you went to a game that your team is not in. No. But it's just we're getting to the finals end, and sadly the, the team who won that game is not in the grand final. I oh,
2: know that Blake'll be nursing a bad hangover now, that's
1: for sure. <laughs> exactly. So, women in Australia also play AFL. Now, it's a tough game. Just in, in fact, f- explain it. it.
2: Um, okay. Uh it's a little like um nfl american football in so far as you can hit you can be hit from any direction more or less but even more so like sometimes you just don't see them coming
1: so the women's competition is exactly the same the girls yeah, go as they hard as go men hard it's so good to watch and that too is spreading around the world alicia is from adelaide she lives in the uk and she's playing for the london swans and she was also as surprised as i was at how popular the game is worldwide
4: it really did surprise me i wasn't aware how it's grown worldwide when i first moved over to the uk so obviously i play for a league in london we have two women's divisions there But there are also university teams for Oxford and Cambridge in England. And there are AFL Europe, which is an organisation who um, have knockout cups and carnivals around Europe. So um, the women's team have travelled to Ireland to play a knockout cup there against teams from France, Denmark, Sweden, Germany even. Uh, There was a carnival in Russia, I believe, as well um, recently. So... I, again, I knew that AFL Women's over the past two years has been growing rapidly in Australia, but it seems that it's happening worldwide at the same time. So why the interest? Um, I think, I suppose, when you travel, you realise that Australians are everywhere. We're all over the world. Um, And I guess the sort of people that travel are the people that, willing to try something new maybe step out of their comfort zone so I suppose it's a great way to meet people Um, it's not a sport like for women AFL hasn't been an option really when I was growing up I never considered that I'd be able to play one day I loved watching it but because it's something that you don't have those people who have played their whole life we're all kind of new to it so I guess it's really easy to get involved and you don't feel like you're 10 years behind because you haven't played your whole life. It's something that it's new for everyone. We're all travelling, we're all wanting to do new things, we're all wanting to meet like-minded people overseas and make some new friends. So I think that's one of the, I guess, one of the attractions.
1: So is making new friends about, you know, barrelling them into the ground? (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> um, yeah, not quite. I suppose, um, it's you know, we do get competitive on the field. Um, the group of girls that I play with at the London Swans are all um, just fantastic women, um, some of whom have played back home and who have had to move back home and are continuing to play, some people who had not really played sport before. Um, so I've become really close to them. But I've also um, had friends that I've talked with that play for different clubs around London, Run into people playing for different teams in London that I knew from Adelaide back home. So, yeah, you do kind of, um, on the field, it's all competitive, but then afterwards kind of interact, which is also really nice.
1: So, as an expat, do people say to you, what team do you go for? Because we do that in Australia when we meet a POM, inverted commas. It's like, you know, which soccer team do you follow? Is it the same in the UK?
4: Yeah, it is, especially if you meet another Australian and you see people coming out, so obviously London Swans, but we're not all Sydney Swans fans and you'll see people coming up, coming out wearing a port beanie or an Essendon Guernsey, so um, I'm planning on, I'm going to be home in Adelaide for Christmas and I'm hoping to pick up a port Guernsey so I can wear it out to training next year. <laughs>
1: so what about the pubs then when it's footy season now we're talking about you know prelims that have just gone this weekend by the time the podcast goes to air and we're heading up to the grand final i know you're in greece but as as an obvious footy fan even though your team's not in it do you plan to watch it
4: Uh, Yeah, definitely. So um, I know that in London there are lots of events popping up on Facebook, you know, um, meet at this pub at 6.30 a.m. for a Cooper's Pale Ale and a pie and watch the Grand Final. Um, I actually – Grand Final last year was my last day in Australia, so I left on the 1st of October. Um, So I just missed out on that last year in London, but I know that it's a huge thing for Aussies in London and um, there are lots of British people who see – Australians kind of stumbling out of the pub at 10:30 a.m and wondering what's going on but um, <laughs> I managed to watch um, a couple of finals two weekends ago in Santorini there was an Aussie pub that were um, that's showing all of the finals and um, going to I'm flying to Munich tomorrow so I'm hoping to be able to watch the prelim tomorrow in Munich somewhere. And then for grand final I'll be in northern Spain, so I'm not really sure if there'll be any pubs, but I'm hoping to be able to somehow find it. If not listen to it, I've got the AFL app so I'd you know, my weekend ritual in London would be wake up and put on the headphones and listen to listen to the port game.
1: Now, Phil, that's an Aussie chick. (laughs) It would be remiss of us though, not to feature an episode on Australia and leave out our indigenous culture.
2: Indigenous Australians, and that also includes Torres Strait Islander peoples. Uh, Look, their culture was torn apart by uh, British colonisation of Australia. It's a very dark period of our history. It includes genocide and Aboriginal children being taken from their families, and they're known as the Stolen Generation.
1: The Indigenous Australians' extraordinary culture offers amazing opportunities for travellers to experience it. So let's let this man introduce himself.
7: My name's Bruce Hammond. I'm uh, an East and Aranda Tungunak old man. Um, firstly, I'd um, like to do a, a welcome to country on behalf of world nomads and myself for the land I stand on today, which is the Kaurna people. Um, I believe you might work out of, out of Sydney, but um, I'm based in Adelaide here, so just acknowledge the, the great country and the, the Kaurna people and that their um, cultural practices are as important today as uh, they have and to respect the elders. Um, I'm uh, really fortunate to have an eastern desert and um, salt water mix through my uh, grandfather and grandmother and uh, was very um, lucky to have a a prominent mother, Ruby Hammond, who um, was active in um, establishing, uh, you know, land rights and, and, um, you know, human rights for Aboriginal people in the early 60s. So um, I've had the really good fortune to walk across the country, I've been in most communities across Australia uh, when I was working my career as uh, one of the people who set up some of the ranger groups. Uh, and today I just want to share with you some of my experiences about um, you know true Aboriginal tourism and how you can get the best out of um, when you travel, um, some signs to look for, and you know to really enjoy and immerse yourself in Aboriginal culture, the, the First Nations culture of Australia.
1: Beautiful. Where will you find those authentic experiences, Bruce?
7: Well, um, today i um you know, as a South Australian Aboriginal person, I'll, I'll focus down on South Australia, but I have experience right across the nation. Um, uh, you know, you've got great opportunities to meet with the Ongar people in the Flinders Ranges. Um, they've got one of the, the biggest land holdings in in Australia, and uh, peanut Pound is a, a great cultural experience, it's a, a few hours out of Adelaide. Um, you've got Digger water and Netbunna, um in which are uh, great cultural experiences um, around the copley Lee Creek region. There's a uh, a great cultural tour mob called Bookerby Tours, and Hayden uh, Bromley can help you out there, and they run tours um, in that Flinders Ranges. They're genuine traditional owners, and they um, have the storyline of the country. Adelaide, where I'm from, there's um, a great um, Ghana community, uh, the traditional lands of the Ghana people as I've welcomed. Uh, you've got a walking trail across Adelaide which just costs nothing to do but it takes you around the Adelaide area. Um, through my Central Desert Connections, uh, Lake Air National Park, Cutty uh, Thunder Danda, um, for the Arrabana and Deary people and um, the best times to go out there are when it's in flood. It's uh, a dry salt lake and uh, every few years we have a, a big flood experience through Queensland and New South Wales and that brings all the bird life and all the native species come alive. It's like a, a, a painted desert, they call it. and You know, it's just absolutely beautiful when it's in flood. Of course, that that happens every three or four years, so you've just got to be lucky, but um, that's an experience to remember. You've got the Coorong National Park here, where you'd be guests of the Nuttanyeti. Um and in South Australia also there's the North North Conservation Park out at Neil Doddy, which is not far out of Adelaide, and you guess guests the um and Gurukul uh, people at Manum, and they've got, um, you know, sacred scar trees where they used to make canoes out of them. They still do today, and, and they have cultural practice.
2: What's going to be special about that experience?
7: Well, as you well know, your international um, guests have probably been on a plane for 14 hours to get here. So we're that far away from anyway. There's nothing like us anywhere in the world. <laughs> so <laughs> you you're got to get a one-off unique uh, experience. Um, I encourage people to plug into the local communities. Um, try and seek out the language groups and understand our, what we call our chukupo, or our dreaming stories, which are our connection to country. Um, engage yourself in a, in a welcome to country, which is often in the, the very good tours accompanied with a smoking ceremony where you can cleanse your soul in, um, in the, the burning of, um, some native grasses or leaves, and it's also about welcoming. As an Aboriginal man myself, when I go off my country and I'm, I go into other country, it's a respectful way of letting them know I'm about, I'm not going to do anything wrong. Um, and as we always say, you know, the only thing you leave behind are your footprints. Uh, we don't have services out there to remove rubbish, and any small bit of rubbish that's left in the central Australia or in our regional areas stays there. So we just encourage people to you know to pack light, travel light and really respect the country they're on. Um, I've grown up in you know the great opportunity to live in two worlds to live in mainstream Australian society but also have strong ties to my culture. Um, and we we often say that when you're out bush and you buy a flyer, the country will talk to you and it'll be your friend. if you ignore, um, the signs of country, it can, it can be really harsh.
2: And- Mate, you mentioned the word country a few times um, and that's at the essence of, um, you know, Indigenous culture is the connection to the land. In the country that you come from, what are the significant landmarks there? So, I mean, are you, you say you're part saltwater, part desert man. So what are, what are the things yeah, which are sort of totemic to your, yeah. to your country?
7: So when you're in the desert mob, well, clearly it's water holes and granite areas where the water catches. Um, these can be both productive for native species for food and also water for survival. Um, You'll have a lot of uh, bush tucker growing out there as well naturally, so if you do get caught out and you've got a bit of familiarity about what to eat and what not to eat, um, you know, you can survive. So definitely, um, you know, we've got all the real kind of kind of Jordan National Park, which is probably the biggest uh, iconic um, rock out there, if you like. But, you know, there's many um, escarpments um, and granite places. On, on the coastal areas, there's great um, sand dunes and um, thousand-year-old middens, um, or maybe ten thousand year old, where people are just continually uh, congregated for food and ceremony, and these middens have been. Time they're the uh, there were shells that people eat in a pile underneath the dune, and they can be you know thousands of years old, and just you know really quite a, a good story about who lived in the area.
1: In your in your article, you touch on um, making sure that travellers make ethical choices. Can you expand on that?
7: Sure, um, you know the Australian culture is is unique to the world, and there are a lot of um, cowboys out there. And again, that's why I'm proud to associate myself with World Nomads. You're a lifestyle opportunity where you can seek out traditional owners of the country and someone with a connection to to the country. And when we say we talk about country as our mother, it's we're obligated to look after it, and it looks after us, returning us with foodstuffs and water. Uh, and a lifestyle that enables the cultural practice. So seek out the the ethical traders, the people are, that are um, from the language groups of each area. And nowadays with the internet and the, the interwebby thing, we're all connected on it. Um, you know, they're easily st- uh, sought, you know, stay away from imported artifacts as an influx of um, uh, keys or didgeridoos and clapsticks coming in from Indonesia, which are just fraudulent and they're just fake. They're easily spotted. Um, and generally, how? if you buy them...
2: Bruce, how do you spot one? How do you uh, tell a fake one? Uh, um,
7: it's generally probably got a made-in-Indonesia
2: sticker on it, is <laughs> it?
7: Yeah, at times. Um, a lot of times, if it's made out of bamboo, it's not. It's, it's a It's a copy. Yep. Um, we, we don't make things out of bamboo, the, the the itikis of the do come from the Anmall people in northern Arnhem Land, and the the tree actually eaten out by um, um, termites. Yep. It's a naturally occurring event, and then they're cleaned up. Um, also, they look too well done. You know, they look machine painted. We do have some great contemporary artists who put out a, a very clean product, but most of the traditional Aboriginal art is painted on the sand next to a fire. Uh, and telling a uh, connection to country, another one is to. In a lot of the ga- galleries, will certify the artist, so they'll have a picture of the artist and the name and the the language group and region they come from. That's uh, a way that you can always um, see. And and if you've got a gut feeling that it is um, a copy, I'd reckon it is. Stay away from it. Yeah.
1: Well, we've chatted to you from um, among the. Aurora people, which is... Gadigal
2: uh, people and the Aurora Nation.
1: Yes, it's been a real pleasure.
7: Oh, look, I've really enjoyed the opportunity.
1: Thanks, Bruce. We'll share his story in show notes, as well as, Phil, one that I wrote about my home state, Tasmania. Now, why Phil laughs when I say that is because it has been in the past the butt of jokes between what is known as mainland Australia and the state of Tasmania. Yep. I'll have you know... Seriously, Tasmania is no longer the butt of those sorts of jokes. We're now world famous, literally world famous, thanks to a museum called Mona. We're a go-to destination with cool festivals headlined by International Acts and, Phil, public nudity is legal once a year. Now, have I summed that up, Lee Carmichael, Creative Director of Dark MoFo? I
8: think you have, Kim. That sounds like a pretty good summary to me. Certainly been some massive changes uh, over the last... I don't know, well, what's Mona now, seven years old? Yep. So during that time, we started the festivals a few years earlier than that. So let's say the last 10 years, yeah, rapid change, especially socially, I think. Um, you know, hotels are now being built and the skyline's changing a little. But I think, yeah, some of the biggest changes that I've noticed is how we, um, our confidence levels and how we see ourselves. And I think some of those jokes that you talk about, you know, why we were able to laugh at them kind of resonated with us and in some ways we did feel that sense of being a backwater and all of a sudden we've got the leading cultural destination or cultural organisation in Australia which is turning Hobart into one of the most forward kind of thinking cultural destinations.
1: And we call it locally in Tassie the Mona effect and it's ironic the day that you, because we were supposed to chat a little earlier to to where we're recording now, and I got off the ferry here in Manly and there were three people, and this, Lee, seriously, will happen to me every second day, that are talking about Tasmania, they're talking about Mona, they're laughing about the vagina wall, have you been to (laughs) Dark Mofo, Um, you know, we're going down to Tassie to see this act. That kind of conversation would not have been on the lips of, as we say, mainlanders seven to ten years ago.
8: No, I think people always knew that Tasmania was a beautiful place with some pretty important and great natural assets, but I think it was not that long ago a kind of place that people thought they would get to at some point, but there was no urgency and no real need to to come down now, and all of a sudden that's changed. I mean, it's the same for me too. I'm now getting asked to speak around Australia about Dark Mofo and the Mona effect, and doesn't seem that long ago that I was apologising for, for being Tasmania and almost kind of invisible. I was, I'd go to these meetings when we were in the development phase of Mona and, and kind of almost be too scared to speak up because the fact that we were based down here kind of made us irrelevant. So it's a dramatic change and it's been fantastic to be part of that whole kind of 10, 15 year journey.
1: And as Tasmanians too, as part of this Mona effect, we really paying a lot of credit to David Walsh. In fact, he's referred to as Tasmania's unofficial leader.
8: Yeah, I think so, and probably um, um, a few other things as well, not always kind. <laughs> he pushes <laughs> the boundaries. Is, well, man is loved and hated, and I think that's what makes it really interesting and fascinating. And David's brave enough to have created his own path, and he's often gone against the normal approaches to museums and tourism ventures. And you know, at times that means we're, we do cop quite a bit of criticism, and, but we, I think we enjoy it and we enjoy the discussion. That's what's made Mona the interesting thing that it is.
1: Well, Mona itself, the museum, has everybody talking. Um, is the vagina wall still there?
8: Yes, it's gone back up. It came down for a few years. David made a claim when we first opened that, uh, cause there's a little, there's an O device that people go around and rate the works that they like and dislike. And he made a promise saying that the works that were most loved would come down first. So we stuck to that promise and they came down for a few years, but I think in the end we've uh, given in and they've gone back up <laughs> but i
1: think it's a good segue into the nude swim um which celebrates the winter solstice and that is something that i did with you and uh dave who i was working with at the time and the lord mayor in its inaugural year wasn't that a thing
8: it was and who would have predicted the the uh growth that that event this year we had i think the year we did it um which was the most frightening year for me because uh-huh. I just uh, I don't swim in summer, let alone in the middle of winter, so that was pretty full on. I think we had, I, know, I can't remember, can you remember, six or seven hundred maybe registered and we probably got 500 swimmers, maybe not quite that many the first year. Anyway, this year we had uh, about 1,600 swimmers and we had to cut it off because the uh, lifesavers can't cope with any more. Yeah. So it's absolutely phenomenal. I think we had 2,500 people show interest. Oh, that's incredible. Um, Yeah, and it is just a really – it's 1,500 adults going through that kind of emotional joy that you have when you're a kid again and just pure rapture and squealing and screaming. and Yeah, it's it's a really brilliant thing to do. Completely uh, um, different than what you might think of if you haven't participated.
1: Well, it's pretty scary when you've got to drop your towel and you know that you're running towards people that are looking at you and there's people behind <laughs> you. you, you sprint to that water. You want to get in there as quickly as possible, whether it's zero degrees or not.
8: Yeah, the, the feeling you get afterwards is just, again, just like pure joy for you know, half a day because you kind of face something. It's kind of, I mean, it's the colour that scares me the most. But, um, yeah, you are nude with a heap of other people around. It's not something you do every day.
1: Well, I did see your backside, and unfortunately I was not at the peak <laughs> of my powers when I did it. So if you saw anything, just keep that secret. Um, so we've, we've touched on, on the museum itself, the Museum of Old and New Art, as we know as Mona. We've talked about Dark um, Mofo. Then there's Mona Phona, and that's curated by Violent Femmes uh, guitarist Brian Ritchie. And really, for a state that once struggled to lure any big-name acts, there's the Flaming Lips, Goitier. Nick Clave, Philip Blass, I mean, you could name them all probably, but they're the types of acts that we're attracting.
8: Yeah, I think Brian played a really important role. Uh, He moved to Tasmania with his wife in about 2007 and because it's a small place, uh, met David quite quickly and, and presented the idea of a festival. The fact that he was here gave us an opportunity to connect with some of the biggest names around the world. And David Walsh is absolutely brilliant at um, when he sees an opportunity, just taking the risk, being brave, going, yep, let's give this a crack because we'd never done festivals. We were a winery at the time. We were building a museum. So Brian kind of put this proposal in front of us. We grabbed it and then we used it as a way to make a noise and to – attract people and and make them aware of what was happening with the museum which at that point was a few years away and yeah the rest is history, it's 10 years old, uh, Mona Fama has won I think two or three Helpman Awards for the best festival in Australia and yeah we've been luring down international artists that not that long ago just didn't make their way to Tasmania, so it's been really brilliant for locals and also we get some pretty great exclusive artists now and they attract interstaters to come down and and see artists on a, a, on, a, on an island in the middle of nowhere.
1: <laughs> and just quickly, how's the hotel going, Homo?
8: Homo is still a few years away, but the designs are phenomenal and David continues to do what he does and add bits and pieces, and pushes and pulls the architects, so it just continually gets more exciting.
1: Well, as we wrap up, the Mona revolution was focused fairly much in the south. Now Mona Foma, um, I believe, is going to Launceston for summer. And yes. I read an article uh, across the weekend that said Launceston is the new cool, <laughs> which I found hard to believe. But <laughs>
8: <laughs> well, no one would have believed that could possibly happen to Hobart, not that long ago. I think what is interesting is exploring spaces that haven't been used, cities uh, that haven't been used, or you know, people haven't visited before. We started Monofono in Hobart, and one of the things that we did very early on was to, to um put artists in unusual spaces, in car parks and in old sheds. And over the last 10 years with the development, we've actually lost access to many of those really cool spaces. They're being built out, and they're turning into hotels. So Launceston, in that sense, is a clean canvas. And it is kind of exciting because it's new space. And that kind of gets at the heart of what we're always trying to do, which is find new and interesting ways to do things.
1: Thanks for that, Lee. That brings us to the end of the episode. About our country, Australia, but before we wrap up, Kate from World Nomads recently visited Exmouth in Western Australia, where you're from.
2: Uh, Western Australia, indeed. Exmouth, great spot.
1: And went diving with whale sharks in the World Heritage-listed Ningaloo Reef. Now, Phil, you're a West Australian boy. What's the difference between Ningaloo and the Great Barrier Reef? Uh,
2: Well, it's very similar in terms of geologically and geographically, so it's warm water. But this one, to get to the Great Barrier Reef, you need to get in a boat and head out to sea. This one, at low tide, parts of it you can actually just swim onto. It's very close to the shore. Yeah, it's called
0: a fringing reef, and lots of it, as you say, is really close to the shore. So we went to a couple of beaches in Cape Range National Park, which is this incredible national park I'd never heard of that is just south of Exmouth. And you park up and you just walk straight off this incredible white sand and you're just snorkelling on the reef.
1: Well, the reef has 500 species of fish, 300 species of corals, And it has these whale sharks. Now, they're massive. Are they dangerous?
0: No. They are filter feeders. They're not interested in us or anything bigger than the size of a postage stamp, really. But they are massive, as you say. And they're they're sort of like the size of of a bus. And they travel on their own. They don't travel in pods. They're solitary. So you go out on these boats and the boats have a spotter plane that's looking for them. And then they they radio the boat and it gets really exciting and you feel a bit like you're in special forces and you've all got to kit up and get your gear on and and then they announce, right, there's one 300 metres off the bat and then you all leap into the water and suddenly it's there. The instructor just says, look down, and you look down and there's this thing the size of a bus coming towards you and you're within 5, 10 metres of it.
1: Wow, so there are no restrictions on how close you can
0: get? There are. You're not allowed to get closer than that right. and you have to stay behind its eyes and a semi a semicircle around the back of it because if they see you they'll dive and then you can't swim with them because you're on the surface how did you do that how were you feeling while you did um really excited I was I hadn't really thought about how it would roll out I've scuba dived before and I knew what was involved with that but I wasn't really sure how this interaction was going to happen they explain it all to you but it's still quite thrilling because the boat's moving at quite a pace and you're standing on these sort of bits sticking out the back of the stern and then suddenly it's just kind of a go 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 instruction and you feel like a navy seal um and then that sort of thrill and excitement changes because it's moving really slowly and it's really peaceful and there's no noise and it's quite beautiful then and really serene and you feel oh i was just delated
1: how many people are in the water at the same time Uh,
0: only 10 only 10 and the boats only take 20 and they're really all over the kind of environmental issues. They want to protect them. Good. I mean, anything that, you know, discourages them to come obviously puts them out of business, so it's in their interests. Yeah. Um, they So they're really specific. How many people? You're only allowed in with them for like four minutes, then you have to get out, and then the next lot get in, and then you're out. And then they wait to spot another one so that they're not being harassed.
1: How amazing. Was there any other fish that you saw at the same time? Well,
0: before we went out, so we saw them sort of beyond the reef. They're just on the other side of the reef. But before you go out to swim with them, you do a lot of snorkelling on the reef, which was really fantastic.
1: So what would your advice be to anyone that's arrived here on the east coast about going to the remote sort of west coast
0: it feels much more like you're doing something that everybody else isn't doing which is really nice yeah i've been out on boats on the reef and they're all leaving cairns at the same time you feel like you're in this great wash of water with 50 boats going out i think we saw two other boats
1: Thanks for that, Kate. Sounds beautiful and remote, which is a great feature of Australia. There are plenty of places to escape to. Let's finish with the answer to your quiz question.
2: Uh, Speaking of escaping, where is Cameron's Corner and why is it significant? It's not actually a corner. It's a survey marker out in the desert that marks where the three states of Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia meet. Uh, This is... There's not much out there. It's (laughs) a long way from anywhere. There is a motel and I'm told they have running water and cold beer. We all know from Outback Pubs that you need cold beer. And apparently they're really proud of the only coffee you can get out there is instant coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And you can also play a round of golf where they've, it's only a three hole course, but each hole's in a different state. That's cool. Tri-state golf, which is good. And it's like 1400 kilometers. That's about 870 miles from the coast.
1: If you have any ideas for interviews or indeed feedback on the show, email podcast at worldnomads.com. You can hear the World Nomads podcast via iTunes, the Google Podcast app, and even in the air on Virgin International and Virgin Flights within Australia. What's next?
2: Uh, we return to our amazing Nomad series and the man who can't stop running, Felix Webster.
1: See ya!
6: Bye. The World Nomads podcast. Explore your boundaries.